0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sioux. And this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by. UniSA, the university that can technically use the acronym USA. But no one would want to, Eric.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Think about it.
0: Like the university, you get a super sweet deal on merchandise. Can you imagine (laughs) all these people around, you know, the uni wearing jumpers that said USA?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you could end up getting sued by the American government (laughs) and come in. They wouldn't be happy about it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: probably, probably. Mm. And I will say the willingness of universities in Australia to embrace acronyms is mixed. Mm. Um, I really like the fact that our alma mater, Louis, the Flinders University, strays so far away from its acronym, F-U.
1: I went to a little old university called FU. (laughs) That's a missed opportunity. I'm going to lean into that from now on.
0: (laughs) In this episode, we're going to examine the topic of philanthropic capitalism. Philanthropic capitalism is a portmanteau of two words philanthropy and capitalism. And what's the deal with it, Louis? What's its backstory?
1: Well, that is hard. It's actually a pretty simple idea, really. It's just the notion that the activities of philanthropy and the activities of capitalism are becoming increasingly intertwined. And it's harder and harder to draw a line between the business activities that occur in society and the charitable acts that occur in society. Is this term of a recent vintage? Yeah, it is. It's it's a term that was um, developed or at least significantly attributed to by uh, Matthew Bishop, who wrote some really prominent articles in the economist and other you know significant financial orientated papers and then on top of that he co-authored a book with uh, Michael Green called Philanthrocapitalism How the Rich Can Save the World and that became a key touchstone in what this concept means and the description of how capitalism is changing in this capitalist world apparently mm. What do people make of
0: capitalism? I mean on at one level it kind of makes sense to many of us right like if you want to support a charity how do you decide which one to support
1: well You're exactly right. And I think when it comes to donating money or it comes to being involved in charitable enterprise and even the term charitable enterprise as well, mind you, (laughs) we do often think about it in kind of a capitalist terms. We think about whether that charity is going to achieve certain ends, whether our money is going to be a good investment, whether the outcomes are going to be, you know, effective. (laughs) You know, we, people even look into how much money a charity spends on the management side of their activities as opposed to the actual delivery of services or whatever else. And these are really business things. You could say the exact same things about just investing money for profit as opposed to investing money for, so, for a, a, a charitable land.
0: When Matthew Bishop and Michael Green were documenting and to some extent promoting mm. this idea of philanthropic capitalism, they were noting how philanthropy needs to be held to a high, supposedly a higher standard. And mm. this standard is one that is steeped in capitalist practices and principles mm. So there needs to be a measurable impact that philanthropies have. It, it can't just be like you donate money and then it just disappears and do a vortex and you aren't sure what good it did.
1: Right? Right. Absolutely. And then there's the other side of it as well. So that's philanthropy becoming more kind of businesslike. But at the same time, there's the fact that businesses are having to deal with things other than just generating profit, about businesses Mm. developing some form of social, environmental consciousness, about putting out policies around how their activities impact the world and, yeah. and whatnot. So in some ways, that's something that doesn't really necessarily neatly fit a really traditional capitalist framework, yeah. because why should a business care about the environment or care about something else? So
0: like anytime you go to McDonald's, there's mm. also the Ronald McDonald Foundation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. and And so many businesses will have policies on how much packaging they use or whatever it is that they're in. There's some form of policy that extends beyond purely Making as much profit as possible. But also, according to people
0: like Bishop and Green, indicates how profit can be made from doing social good. Mm. It can involve social good being done, but at the cost not of the taxpayer but by the individual entrepreneur.
1: Mm, Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about their work on this is they're not just uh, neutrally identifying a new phenomenon. They're they're, they're fans, right? They love it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I mean, they're happy about it. That's right. They're like, if if business is the main (laughs) generator in society, if business is, you know, producing all this wealth and it's the main way that we exchange goods and do everything else, then we need capitalism to be orientated on broader philanthropic goals. I mean, that's a fantastic thing if businesses it, care about this It's
0: stuff. the tone they take in writing about mm. philanthropic capitalism. Mm. You know? it, it's like they go into a room filled with other <laughs> capitalists mm. and then they talk about how great philanthropic capitalism mm. is and then the response they get is something a bit like this.
1: <laughs> uh, the first gratuitous sound effect of the uh, yeah. podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, it would be amazing <laughs> if the podcast just finished there. Like, all right, yeah, that's we're it. Done. We're done. Then, yeah. You know, I've been Louis ever. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it doesn't end there because mm. enter the work of Lindsay Magoey. Magoi mm. is someone who has analyzed philanthropic capitalism from a sociological perspective, and in an article in Poetics she highlights one aspect of it in particular that we should be questioning of. She wants to temper the enthusiasm that some people have about this trend, about this concept. Hmm. And so in this article, she tries to understand first and foremost what is new about it. Because Bishop and Green don't just say, wow, this is this amazing that's happened. They're making a claim about its novelty. The argument for them is that Philanthrop capitalism marks a change in the way philanthropy and
1: capitalism are done. But Magoey disputes this. Mm. In what ways, Louis? Well, I mean, one thing she points out, which I think is a pretty uh, convincing argument, is that the notion that capitalism is only now becoming concerned with ethics and morals and has that mm. side of it is just rubbish, really. And one of the great examples she gives is Adam Smith's notion of the invisible hand Mm. and Adam Smith being such a prominent thinker Mm. of of the free market and of capitalism and early forms of liberalism. And his fundamental idea was that if everyone acts in a self-serving way, if everyone looks after their own interests and tries to generate wealth for themselves, this will have a broader social good. This will increase the gen wealth of the population and will rise everyone's standards. Yeah. So the invisible hand of the marker. If you
0: think about it, the idea that we should somehow celebrate self-interest mm. is not one that's immediately self-evident. Like at one level, if someone's just self-interested, you could say they're very selfish. They They don't want to share. And Smith comes along and says, actually, if we're all concerned about our own self this actually has social benefits. Mm. And so, I think that's a really interesting observation that this idea that philanthropy and capitalism or social good and the capitalist pursuit are somehow linked that that's that's something that's not necessarily all that new and novel. It's old hat. <laughs> <laughs> What's more, Magoey also notes that capitalists of yesteryear were also interested in applying capitalist principles to philanthropic pursuits. So for example, uh, she quotes the work of Beatrice and Sidney Webb, who were 20th century British reformers, and that's, according to her, what prompted them to found the London School of Economics and Political Science. They were trying to apply the scientific method to social problems. So on the one hand, the lesson that emerges from magoe's work is capitalism may not be all that new. Mm, absolutely. But what is new about Philanthrocapitalism, according to her?
1: Well, one thing she mentions, it's not so much a... Qualitative change in terms of the quality of philanthropy and capitalism, in their relationship, but it's more a kind of quantitative thing, and it's just the sheer scale <laughs> of philanthrocapitalism at the moment. Um, and this piece we need to remember was now written in 2012, and so even some of the numbers that were were quoted in here, charitable giving has more than doubled from 13 billion in 1996 <laughs> to nearly 32 billion in 2006. Um we should really quickly Google what it is now <laughs> and add that in too. But the point remains the same. The point is that the amount of money that's slushing around and being used for, you know, what we consider charitable purposes is just exponentially increasing as potentially wealth and inequality also <laughs> increases. But we'll come back to that in a sec. So,
0: on the one hand, there's a quantitative difference, just the amount of money that's now involved in philanthropic pursuits. Um, I think there's a nice quote, isn't there, Louis, in the text?
1: Yeah, and we've got to remember this text is now from 2012, so this this is slightly different now. But Maguire points out that charitable giving has more than doubled from 13 billion in 1996 to nearly 32 billion in 2006. Some epic numbers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's more than that. There's something also novel about philanthropic capitalism, and it has to do with the very outspokenness of the self-interested motivations of charitable gestures, which is
1: a direct quote from the text. I think this is such an interesting point I've got to say because it's it it moves away from the outcomes and really goes to the action or how someone gives (laughs) you know and it's really just saying aren't people so showy about it these days like aren't they so blatant and obvious it's like you don't just donate money to a school you organize a series of press conferences and you have a (laughs) a social media (laughs) advisor making sure everyone knows about yeah like you can imagine someone like Kim Kardashian or Kanye West it's like when they donate money, it's like you're <laughs> going to hear about it. <laughs> it's going to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, the Polar
0: press conference. And <laughs> also companies. Mm. Companies advertise how much they're donating, mm. what they're donating for. Mm. There's a nakedness now to the link between money-making and philanthropic pursuits that didn't exist, according to McGoey. Now, in order to actually get at what she's trying to say here, it might be useful for us to look at her discussion of gift-giving. Gift-giving is something we're kind of familiar with. Sociologists have come to analyze it. One of the most famous sociologists to have done so is Marcel Moss. And Moss once talked about how gift-giving isn't simply just a simple act. It's actually quite complicated and involved. When a gift is given to you, there are expectations that are placed on you. And oftentimes those expectations are put there covertly or informally. Mm. Right? So, Louis, I've given you loads of gifts.
1: You have. Right? You have. <laughs> is that it? Do you just go, yep, thank you for the gift? Well, you know what? I've got to say, that's probably not a good example because the point that is making here is that there's some form of a kind of contract that's established. Um, but with our scenario, I, I am opposed to the over-gifting that you seem to be akin to. And so, yes, I just take the gift and say, thank you very much. And I well, give nothing in return. now, that's not nothing quite true, though. Return. That's
0: not quite true, though, because... Your wife, Louie, feels bad <laughs> yeah. that I give so many things to you she and her, so she feels like she needs to make up for
1: it. <laughs> she, yeah, that's true. So the relationship developed between you and her fits what McGow is talking about here. <laughs> The fact that the giving of the gift creates some form of obligation or expectation. Yeah. But uh, I stay out of this whole business. (laughs) I feel no such obligation or expectation.
0: (laughs) Now, what's interesting, though, is that usually when you give a gift and you kind of expect to receive something in return at some point, that there's a kind of a mystery involved, right? Or a lack of certainty as to what that might consist of. So a gift is different than just engaging in a contract, right? Like Mm. if you like rent a house from someone, you won't be like, oh, they're giving me the gift of having a roof over my head. (laughs) That's not a gift because you know exactly what you're getting in return for the thing you're giving, Mm. right? So in exchange for you know money, I get somewhere to live. But a gift is a little bit different. Mm. You're still expecting, to some extent, to get something back, whether it's adoration mm. or it's a, it's another. Or in some cases, in Christ, like during Christmas
1: time, you're expecting to get another gift back from mm. someone, right? Yeah, or just the general development of goodwill with a partner that could be beneficial down the track in terms of ongoing kind of business relations or whatever. That that's always been there, but I think the interesting thing is <laughs> pointing to is you no longer need to hide that you expect something in return <laughs> yeah that's right I mean she says here it's so great she says not only is it unnecessary to disguise self-interest this motivation is championed as the most justifiable motive for investing in poverty alleviation so you are now allowed to give to charity and outwardly say I'm doing this because it's actually going to increase my business profit or I'm doing this because people are going to buy more stuff off me or watch more of my TikToks or whatever it is you, that's celebrated and people sit back and say yeah Yeah, yeah, he's doing the right thing. thing, He wants to personally benefit, but so what? That's great. Good for him.
0: In (laughs) fact, the two can be so linked that in order for social good to be done, it could be argued that you need to actually be wealthy. You need to be a good capitalist. And that link is something that I think McGaughy finds very troubling. She finds very, very, very troubling.
1: I think you're spot on and that's probably one of the most significant criticisms that this piece is making it's that as more and more of the uh, provision of social services as more and more of the things that we need to occur in society are done by philanthropy and not by governments or not by other institutions outside of philanthropy then all of a sudden we're now reliant on people becoming hugely wealthy to be able to do that philanthropy so what we're then doing is we're locking in capitalism we say we need capitalism and you know in the same breath we're saying we need kind of low taxation we need conditions that are really <laughs> productive to good business we need yeah. all these things which also is starting to create some of the problems that philanthropy might have to fix down the track yeah. just in order so people can then do the philanthropy to then provide social services to look after the environment
0: okay so let's talk about Batman
1: You know Batman, right, Louie? I do. Okay, so
0: I'm like Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. I own this huge corporation, Mm -hmm. and I hoard vast amounts of wealth, Mm -hmm. okay? The dude is, like, super rich, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so, presumably, Gotham Mm -hmm. is full of income inequality, (laughs) and Bruce Wayne is one of those people who's championing that, Mm. right? You never see Batman, like, trying to give money to everyone else. You never see Batman or Bruce Wayne try
1: to address the issue of taxation. No, he, he should be yeah going to government meetings and saying, I think the wealthy in Gotham should be paying a higher <laughs> rate of income tax. Right? You,
0: ne- you never see that, right? Yeah. So you have a city then that has high levels of in- in- inequality. Mm. And then he, his solution to it is to like, Fight crime and beat people up. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then so there's like this perception that we really need Batman. Mm. You know, if Batman wasn't there, what would we do about the cr- the criminals that are out there? Mm. But what McCoy would probably say is, why do we think we... Absolutely need Batman in the first place. Why do we need the super wealthy
1: to save us? That's right. And particularly if the very process of the super wealthy becoming super wealthy has caused the problems we need saving from. Why not solve the problem (laughs) before it becomes a problem? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah,
0: And and I think that's a really interesting idea. And it's even captured in a quote that we're going to look at. In a segment we like to call, Say What!
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have a say what today, don't you, Eric?
0: <laughs> this is when we look at a quote in need of further explanation. And McGoey writes, Perceptions of the indispensability of philanthropic initiatives are strengthened as a direct result of their very inability to meet stated objectives. The solution to failed philanthropy is more of it. The failure of philanthropy is success.
1: <laughs> Can I say Eric? that that could be the hardest say what we've had because philanthropic philanthropy uh, is the like, uh, there's, there's the a nightmare. lot of like hard phoning ah, going on there. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> well done to you. It's difficult. <laughs> you Thanks should, very that much. That was the applause should happen yeah. then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's not even explain <laughs> it. Let's just finish the-, the fact that I got through yeah. it. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think it's, it's making a really interesting point in that it almost puts capitalists in a no-lose situation. Mm. So... If I, as a capitalist, make tremendous amounts of money, I then am lauded for doing that because I can donate some of that money to philanthropic causes. And then it means that it justifies me continuing to make even more money, Mm. which then causes further need for those philanthropic initiatives to take place.
1: Mm. And there's something... That I find concerning, I must say, (laughs) about so much of the provision of public services being in the hands of individuals, of an unelected group of wealthy individuals who have made their money through capitalism, then deciding how social welfare, how environmental policy, how these things can occur. If the government's not involved in this stuff, we've shifted away from democratic principles there.
0: In a different article, Mugowie actually makes that very point because defenders of philanthrocapitalism capitalism will say, actually, philanthrop capitalists are actually just small fish mm-hmm. in a very large pond. They actually can't compete with the tremendous amounts of money that are spent by governments. But she questions that, actually. She questions the disproportionate power that philanthrop capitalists actually have compared to the average person, and how we should be very critical of this particular phenomenon. We can't just simply take the claims of capitalism as read. That, I think, is the promise of sociology, <laughs> <laughs> right, of constantly raising questions Taking a more critical lens to the issues of today, and hopefully that's what we've done today in this podcast.
1: I like to think of it as poking the seedy underbelly of the <laughs> of, of all the things we take for granted. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thanks very much for listening. As always, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs, online or in person, at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au, where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com.